We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is your host, Silas Dean, and this is a Creeptime original podcast, The Sinister. So make sure to go check out Creeptime the podcast right after this show. You know, I've had a lot of requests to take on this story, and I truthfully, I don't think I knew very much about it. But what I did know was that it was a disappearance. And I would say disappearances are kind of the crux of creep time and the sinister, because a disappearance is inherently alluring. Nobody just vanishes, and I firmly believe that. And in the case of Susan Powell, that couldn't be more true, in my opinion. And truthfully, what I would say is, if there's anything that researching these cases has really taught me, it's that you cannot judge anybody on appearances. This looked, in my opinion, like a picturesque family. But what was going on beneath the surface was so far from that, and ultimately, most likely fatal. So what you'll hear today is the story of Susan, a mother who to this day is still missing. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Sinister with Silas. I'm your host, Silas Dean, and every week I come right on here. I hang out with you right after an episode of Creep Time, the podcast, and I cover the eeriest stories that I know. So please follow and subscribe to the podcast and turn on the bell notification so that you never have to miss an episode. And I would also appreciate a review and if you could share the podcast to help support the stories of The Sinister. Thanks again for stopping by. And with that, let's get into the story. So what do we actually know about Susan? What's a bit of her backstory? Where did she come from? How did she end up meeting her eventual husband? So Susan was born on October 16th in 1981. And I was kind of confused by her birth state because I saw some resources that said she was born up in Oregon and then others that said she was born in New Mexico, but she was born in the States. And of course, I'm going to get into a bit of the backstory about Susan's life and how people really saw her. But really, the clear takeaway is that Susan was an incredibly warm and loving and generous person, especially when she had her two boys. She was described as just an ideal mother. I mean, she would do anything for those kids. But I think for the sake of the story, it's important to first establish Susan and then establish her eventual husband, who would become our person of interest. So that brings us to Josh Powell. He was born January 20th in 1976, and he was born, for sure, in the state of Oregon, which made sense to me with the original research that I found on Susan that they were both from the same state. But I want to first lay the foundation here and just set up a little bit about Josh's backstory because I found this really unnerving, but it also colored a lot of what would come in Susan's story in their marriage. So Josh, from a very young age, this was uncovered from previous divorce documents, he had an extremely disturbing relationship with his biological father, which is 
crazy because he actually lived with the father and Susan at the same time at one point after they first got married. But when Josh was a kid, he suffered some horrific abuse from his father, which was not only physical, but also sexual. I won't get into too many details about it, but from everything I could see through different court documents, everything that is public facing, it sounded like his dad had his own issues with sexual deviancy and was effectively showing Joshua sexual materials at like a very young age. And this in turn, of course, really messed with his psyche when he was growing up, when he became a teenager. He tried to take his life at one point and allegedly even attacked his own mother and attempted to kill her. But that's a bit murky and just an allegation. But I gotta say, I feel like this definitely colors the story, at least for me. I mean, if I have that foundation for this suspect in this narrative, that he has this sort of underbelly of emotional trauma, extreme abuse from a parent, he's clearly been violent, it sounds like, towards women before his own mother. So that gave me the framework for what his relationship might be like with Susan once they eventually live together. And just one additional thing that I would say here to sort of set the whole thing up, it's that Susan and Josh were both Mormon. Yes, part of the Mormon church. They met very young at a church function. And I think by 2001, when they're like 18, 19, they're married. And if anybody knows anything about Mormon religion, the Mormon church, marriage is a very sacred commitment. You do not back out of it. Divorce is usually not an option. But again, once they were married in 2001, they were sort of described to be the perfect couple. You know, they were the example. Josh seemed to have a pretty good setup financially. He was working in web design as well as real estate. So, of course, the natural progression for Susan and Josh would be to start a family. Now, before they do start a family, they actually uproot and they all move out to Utah, leave Oregon. They start their family in 2005. They first have Charles. A couple years later, 2007, they have Brayden, two boys. So everybody who knew them or was around them, all of the friends, friends of the family, they really thought this was a picturesque couple with two kids, right? You know, these two boys, they were growing up very quick. They loved all things little boys loved, you know, superheroes, transformers. They loved insects. Like they were just a really normal family. I want to overemphasize that because under the surface, there was something else going on. So we first kind of get clued into this from one of Susan's close friends, Darlene. Darlene claims that Susan kind of confided in her and she was like, you know, this isn't what everybody thinks. Like the appearance of the perfect family, the two kids, Josh and I, it's a totally different story behind closed doors. So then it starts to get a bit darker and she's confiding in her and she's saying, he's extremely abusive. He owns me. He told me that if I ever leave him, which they had been having conversations about, that he was going to take those boys. Those boys were his. So effectively, it kind of seems like he's got this tumultuous and abusive dynamic with Susan where he has made her feel as if she is on the outskirts of the marriage and the family. She is owned by him. Those are his sons. She can't do anything. She can't leave him. She can't raise concern. And she's trapped. And this is all in addition to some alleged physical abuse that's going on behind the scenes as well. So she tells all of this to Darlene, and Darlene just has to sit with it. But the other secret that's sitting underneath this is some extreme financial trouble. Susan and Josh are not doing well by 2007, and Josh would actually file for bankruptcy that year. 
So in the timeline of the story, I would say most of this starts heating up by 2008, July. This is, I think, when Susan has sort of ventured out. She's thinking about divorce, thinking about leaving Josh. She's speaking with an attorney. This attorney advises her that she should make a video of herself and the home. She should show on video all of the assets in the home as a precaution in the event that she was ever able to leave Josh, prove what was hers, what was his, or if something happened to her. It is so, so chilling to think about this video being made and the context in which it was made and just knowing what was going to come just a year later. And what's interesting about that video is really you kind of see her documenting all these different things, all of these assets, let's say. And while she's doing so, she's sort of like lamenting to the camera, like talking about Josh. She was like, Josh bought this. He expensed it on my credit. Oh, this is a necklace that I had that Josh broke because he was angry at me. Like it's, it's, it's very telling. It's the only way I can describe it is like the audio because it's POV. The audio of what she's saying in the background is very telling to me that Clearly, Josh is abusive towards her. It sounds like he preys upon her and her money. And it just seems clear to me that she's on her way out. She is trying to get out of this marriage. She wants to document everything and whatever financial troubles that he has, whatever issues he has, she's ready to leave that behind. Now, the next date in this story that we're going to fixate on is December 6th, 2009. Now, on the morning of this day, what we do know is that Susan took the two boys to church. This was Charles and Brayden. At this point, they're four and two. They go to church. They come back to the home. Allegedly, a next-door neighbor came over to visit. She would leave by 5 p.m. This is the extent of what we know happened on that day. By the following morning, December 7th, Susan never showed up to drop the boys off at daycare. So what was pretty smart about this daycare was that they acted very quickly. You know, they knew that this was abnormal. They knew this was not Susan. So they opted to call the emergency contact that was listed, which was actually Josh's sister, Jennifer. So Jennifer gets a call and she ends up trying to get there to the home to see if something might be wrong. She's trying to get in. She can't see anything inside. But of course, this like feeling of paranoia almost sets in for her immediately where she thinks they might be victims of carbon monoxide poisoning, like something could be wrong inside the home. She calls the police. Police show up. They take it just as seriously. They break into the home. Now, once they get inside, the first thing that they notice is that wherever Susan is, she's not there, neither are the boys, but she left her purse and her phone. Didn't make sense. If she was going anywhere, why would she not take those two items? But it gets even stranger. As police and the sister are kind of circling around the home, inspecting it, What they really notice and what sticks out to them as odd is that in the living room, things appear to be damp, like the upholstery on the furniture, the carpet. It was all freshly washed, and there were two very large box fans that were placed and on set up to dry the carpet and the couch. This whole thing is just one big red flag, and I think police, the county police, They would agree. I mean, they take action. They try to get a hold of Josh. When they do get a hold of him, what they realize is that he's actually on his way back to the home right around the same time that they're there breaking in, inspecting the home. And he happens to have the two boys. He claims that he took them on a spur-of-the-moment camping trip the night before and that he didn't see Susan. So he assumes Susan was already at work. 
What's crazy about that is that he claims they decided to go on this camping trip and actually left the night before around midnight. Are you hearing what I'm hearing? Like, I here's the thing. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Nobody leaves for a camping trip at midnight, point blank. It, it doesn't matter who you are. It's just an odd thing to do. Specifically, nobody leaves for a camping trip at midnight with a four and two-year-old alone. In addition to that, they only had one car. It was a shared car between Josh and Susan. So he, he's like, I, th- I thought she was at work. With what vehicle? It just, none of it made sense. It's so painfully obvious to me. And of course, I mean, police sniff this right away and they're like, okay, so let's back up and re-explain this to us. You decided to go on a spur-of-the-moment camping trip, not go with your wife, just take the two boys. It's December in Utah. We're talking below freezing temperatures. And he left after midnight and then hadn't heard from Susan, was gone all day. She doesn't show up to work. She doesn't call out sick. She's just missing. And apparently when they come back home, there are these two big box fans that are drying off freshly washed carpet and upholstery. This is so insanely obvious. It's crazy. Oh, and in addition to that, it took him two days after the fact to actually alert Susan's family that she's missing. It was already on on like local news at this point. He didn't even bother calling her family. And when he eventually did, to their description of it, he was incredibly apathetic about it. Couldn't care less. Could not care less that she was missing. He's just like, by the way, this is happening. And at this point, the media traction on the case, it started to, you know, kick up a little bit. This has national coverage. Josh is officially a person of interest, but not a suspect. It's kind of complicated because there's no legitimate evidence at this point to actually pin this on Josh. So they're kind of walking the line where they're treating this like, okay, this could be like a spousal murder case, or it could be that this is a wife who snapped and ran out. She's a missing person. So they're still kind of pursuing this as such. There's nothing to tie it back to Josh. But what's strange is that not even a month after she's declared missing, he picks up and moves the boys out of state. They move to Washington. So he leaves everything behind. They move in with Josh's father. I think to his description and what he was trying to put up as his defense was that, you know, they just couldn't handle the financial burden of staying in Utah anymore, especially with all of this going on with Susan missing. So they had to move back in with Josh's father, which don't forget sexual deviant. And actually to color that just a little bit more, a little bit of history about when Susan and Josh had first gotten married and were together, they were living with Josh's father. Allegedly, Josh's father had been preying upon Susan extensively. Like we're talking slipping mirrors under doors to like look at her while she's in the shower or while she's in the bathroom and like creepy things like this. And eventually he professed his love to Susan said he was in love with her. And that caught, I mean, she was disgusted and it caused a huge rift. And that was eventually 
what got them to move out and leave the state. It's why they originally came to Utah. What we're left with is that Susan is still missing. Josh has left the state with the boys, and eventually weeks would turn into months, turns into a year. I mean, there's nothing to really keep police on the lead of where Susan might have gone or where she's been placed or buried, hidden, let's say. And there's nothing to directly tie it back to Josh. So we're kind of left without answers until about a year after the fact where we get some insight from the boys, which was incredibly disturbing. Now, this event took place in the summer of 2010, where Brayden, the younger brother, was drawing a picture and he depicted a van. In the van was him, his brother, and his father. And when he was asked, you know, where's your mother? He said, she's in the trunk. He also started to make claims that he had memories of them driving with his mom in the trunk. And then him and his brother stayed in the van. And his dad left with the mom. And only his dad came back. He also said that he thought his mommy was dead. It would seem shockingly obvious, at least to me when I was first reading the story, that it is so, so clear that something went down here and that Josh is culpable or he knows more than what he's letting on. But even so, they still don't have enough evidence to concretely say he's behind this. They can't really, they don't want to try it without enough evidence because if they do and it fails, that could be the end of it. But things are really starting to heat up, I think, between the family at this point. Because don't forget, Josh has already uprooted. He took the boys back. They're living with the father. And Susan's family, I mean, her parents, they're completely devastated. So they're actually still doing, you know, protests. They're trying to raise awareness, keep the story alive. There is a sparring match kind of caught like on live TV where Josh's father goes head to head with Susan's father and just completely different planes of reality. Susan's father is of course, trying to, you know, defend that Josh might be behind this. They have to do something to find his daughter. And Josh's father is saying, you know, she was a mentally ill woman. You're spreading misinformation. You're trying to harm us. You're using the boys, using the children as pawns. I mean, the whole thing was starting to become a media circus. And then Josh's father, he even starts to go on television. And he's putting out this false narrative that Susan was a sexual predator towards him saying that she was often coming on to him, doing things like leaning over his lap, or she's coming out of the shower with freshly shaved legs, and she's saying, feel how smooth. He's just completely fabricating the whole thing. Now, eventually, this does come back to bite him, though, and he gets his, because police come and they do a raid of Josh's father's home. What they found in that home, (laughs) even though he's trying to dispel the narrative that he was a sexual predator towards Susan, They found more than 4,000 photos of Susan that were taken without her knowledge. We're talking pictures while she's sleeping, pictures of her in the shower, in the bathroom, pictures up close of her private body parts. This guy, this is like in addition to, of course, like plenty of other illegal porn that he had on his computer. It's all seized. He is arrested. And eventually the boys get taken away because they don't feel that Josh is a safe parent. They don't, I mean, obviously Josh's father, Stephen, he's not a safe guardian either. So the boys are completely removed. And now Susan's parents are trying to petition to get custody because they are fearful that with all of this kind of falling apart, Josh is going to do something because the last loose end in this story are the boys. They might know something and the older they get, 
they might say something. So here's where we're at. Eventually, this does go to court. The grandparents are awarded custody by 2011, which is a great thing. But Josh, still not convicted for any real attachment to Susan's disappearance, he is allowed supervised visits in a facility. He can only visit the boys under a certain criteria. But soon after, that changes. He's allowed to have visitations with the boys, still supervised, but it can be in his home. And this would be the fatal mistake of the case. By 2012, again, Josh is allowed to have these supervised visits on a very limited basis with his kids. They are watched over by a woman. She was appointed to their case. Her name was Elizabeth. She said everything about their visits was very normal. It was very fine. The kids seemed happy. But a shocking and disturbing discovery was made. It was a series of cartoon drawings which appeared to depict illegal porn which were found and believed to belong to Josh. These were submitted to a judge. So the judge basically said that there would be a reevaluation on the visitation rights and this privilege given that Josh needed to have a psychosexual evaluation for them to ensure he was still a safe person to be around these kids, which is insane in like the full like big picture context of this case. So a lot of people think that this might have been the tipping point to the downward spiral where Josh was going down. He was most likely going to lose full visitation privileges to his children, and he was very possibly finally going to go to prison. So he concocted a plan. On a very specific day, where Josh was set to have a scheduled visitation, which would be supervised by Elizabeth, the caseworker, he had gone out and purchased a very, very large amount of gasoline, about five gallons worth. He's also seen on camera at a thrift store, giving away almost the entirety of his two sons' belongings, all of their toys. So Elizabeth pulled up with the two boys in the car. They ran out of the car to go to the front door to greet their dad, as Elizabeth followed behind them. Allegedly what happened, according to her, was that Josh slammed the door shut and locked Elizabeth out, and the boys were already inside. So the caseworker has been shut out of the home. She doesn't know what's going on. She gets on the phone with 911. Simultaneously, what had just happened before Elizabeth arrived, Josh had sent out an email to his family saying something to the effect of, I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. He also left his sister a voicemail, which said something very similar, which prompted her to call 911. So now we got two people who were trying to get cops to the home, but something is going down. On the inside of that home, what Elizabeth can hear in the background while she's on the phone with 911 is that the boys are screaming. Josh is hacking at his sons with a hatchet. Now, at this point, the caseworker, she doesn't even know that part. She just knows that Josh has locked her out. The kids are screaming. She's on the phone with 911, and the dispatchers aren't really taking it very seriously. They're kind of like, there are other life-threatening situations. We're not really sure what the situation is. How did he even get access to the kids? Like, they're biding time and not sending immediate help. And by the end of the call, she's very panicked, very frantic, because she's backing away from the home because she smells gas. They get off the phone with her. She immediately calls back because almost the second 911 hangs up and they say, we've got somebody en route, the entire house explodes. The whole home goes up in flames. And the only survivor of that attack would be Elizabeth because she was on the outside of the home. 
the entire neighborhood basically went into pandemonium because this was a huge explosion. Of course, resources come, fire trucks come to put out the inferno where they found three bodies inside the home, one adult and two boys, and it was very clear that Josh had the intentions to kill his children and take his life. And once the bodies are recovered, there's an autopsy of all three. The official death, I believe, was carbon monoxide poisoning, which, to me, despite you know the hatchet and despite the burning, the actual inferno, it suggested they may have died slowly, which was really devastating to think about for these kids. In my opinion, they should have never, ever have been allowed in the custody, even under a supervised visit with their father, especially at this age. I mean, they're too young, they're too vulnerable. We don't actually even know what it is that they knew about their own mother's death, their own mother's murder. And ultimately, once this news is, of course, relayed to all families, it would be Susan's parents who actually go on to sue the state of Washington for the child welfare services, saying that they are culpable in allowing this sort of visitation scenario to go on. Because the thing is, this was appointed by a judge. I mean, a caseworker, this system of the supervised visits, the visits in his home, it was all orchestrated by a judge. And really, Susan's parents, they have no say in it. I mean, of course, they have custody, but they can't deny him access to see these children if this is the system that a judge appointed, that the court's appointed. It's, it's a very complicated and horrific tragedy but it was preventable. I hope that they see something from that lawsuit and for the loss of life here because it is on the hands. The blood of this is on the hands of the court system, of the judge that appointed this, and truthfully, of the welfare office that was supposed to oversee and protect those kids. Ultimately, the news of this is relayed back to Josh's family, of course, day of, because his sister was aware that he was having suicidal ideations. She has come forward and said that she believes that Josh was wholeheartedly responsible for the death of Susan. From day one, she has believed that. And she was sort of caught in the middle of, you know, this is my brother, this is my family. I don't want to believe that, but I do believe it. And there have also been additional allegations that the abuse that was going on inside that home with Susan, with the boys, was much more extensive than what we thought. We're talking potential sexual abuse of the children, we're talking starvation abuse, possibly of the children and Susan. I mean, this whole thing, it could have been a multitude of things. It could have been about ownership. It could have been about dominance. It could have been about money, about trying to capitalize and, you know, take in Susan's assets when she was gone. But eventually, the remainder of her estate is, of course, awarded to her grieving parents, her family, as it should be. But to this day, Susan's body is still missing. There has been a lot of work to have her legally presumed dead, although her remains have never been located, and her case is still sort of in the gray area where we don't have a full picture into what exactly happened to her in her final moments. I feel so deeply for Susan and those children and the family that is left behind to deal with all of this mess that Joshua created. And I know that there is so much more to this case because it does sit in that kind of gray space where clearly we know that Josh was culpable in some way for Susan's death. And that was sort of the, the inception of all of it. But I just think there is so much more 
that went on behind the scenes, but he has eliminated almost every access point for us to piece together what the real story is here. So I want to say thank you to everybody who has continued to request this case because a lot of creepers have really, really been diligent about trying to get us to cover this story. I think I'm going to cover it on Creep Time, the podcast, because it's so, it's such an overwhelming story that I, I just, I feel like I want to keep sharing it on different platforms. But even though the entirety of the family is gone, I still think it is a valuable case to talk about. It is valuable to share her story. And maybe one day we might find something out. Stranger things have happened. But thank you again for listening to this. Thank you for sitting through what is probably one of the most horrific cases we've covered in recent memory across this podcast, Creep Time, the podcast, any of the shows that we do. But I want to say thank you again for the request. I am going to catch you guys next week for another episode of The Sinister. So for now, I'll say goodbye. <laughs>